thank you for downloading this Lunchtime Talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. In this live recording, the Art Gallery's Curator of European and North American Art, Tony Magnusson, introduces the exhibition Colours of Impressionism, Masterpieces from the Musée d'Orsay. My name is Tony Magnusson. I am the Curator of European and North American Art here at the Art Gallery of South Australia and also have the good fortune of being the Coordinating Curator of Colours of Impressionism, Masterpieces from the Musée d'Orsay. Um, can everyone hear me okay? Okay, great. Before we begin, I'd just like to acknowledge that we meet on the traditional lands of the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains and we pay our respects to elders past, present and forthcoming. So today I'd like to talk about Edouard Manet and I'm going to structure this presentation around a number of questions that relate to his art, uh, his work, his, um, his, his life, his work and his legacy. Um, I'm also using as many quotations from primary uh, sources as I can so that we can um, uh, better come to appreciate the life and work of Manet uh, through the comments of his contemporaries. So let's start with what did Manet look like? And um, my colleagues are going to send around um, uh, some examples of his work um, so you can... Um, so you can see uh, what he looks like. So if you just want to sort of pass those around amongst yourselves. Um, the first two images are photographs of Manet taken by the society photographer Nadar. Um, and Anton, Antonin, Antonin Proust, who was a boyhood friend of Manet, uh, described him in his youth as follows. Of medium height and well-muscled, he was obviously a thoroughbred. Beneath a broad forehead, the frank, straight line of the nose, the eyes small, the glance lively. There were few men so attractive. At the age of 35, his eyes were characterised by his great defender, the critic and novelist Emile Zola, as being narrow and deep-set with a boyish liveliness and fire. And even in 1878, only five years before dying at the age of 51 from complications uh, caused by syphilis as well as the medicine he was taking to uh, 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 treat that infection, he was described as being as uh, of youthful appearance, most distinguished, turned out with elegant simplicity. Light hair, a fine silky beard, grey eyes, nose straight with flaring nostrils, hand gloved, step quick and springy. Manet always dressed well. Uh, we're talking top hat, frock coat, yellow suede gloves, walking stick, and according to his friend Armand Silvestre, intentionally gaudy trousers. Uh, and this morning when I got dressed in honour of Manet, I decided to do likewise. Uh, his friend and fellow painter, uh, Henri Fontaine Latour, declared, the fierce tribune of painting is the willing slave of fashion. While the poet Theodore Banville wrote that he was fair-haired and twinkling, from whom grace shone every way. He had about him an air from top to toe of the perfect gentleman. So what was Manet's personality like? Uh, he was a true Parisian through and through, claiming that it was impossible to live anywhere else. He was urbane, he was charming, he was sharp-tongued and very much fond of irony. He could be kind, but he could also be cruel. Uh, again, Armand Silvestre, his friend, writes, he had a formidable wit, at once trenchant and crushing, but how apt in expression, and often how true in thought. 
that in terms of his attitude towards his own art, Manet was, he seemed to oscillate, shall we say, between a cool bravado and a niggling lack of confidence. Uh, and he had a fiery temper. Uh, he once challenged a friend, the art critic Edmond Durante, to a duel in 1870 because of something Durante had written about his work. Uh, fortunately, he inflicted on Durante only a light injury. Neither of them knew their way around a fencing sword, and they resumed their friendship shortly afterwards. Um, in addition, in 1866, after seeing a portrait that Edgar Degas had painted of him and his wife Suzanne, whom he'd married in 1863, Manet was so displeased with the way his friend has depicted his wife that he excised her face and hands from the canvas with a knife. Uh, Degas was livid and the pair didn't speak for a number of months. Uh, but after they'd kissed and made up, Degas said, oh, one cannot stay vexed with Manet for very long. Very perceptibly, his friend, uh, the poet Charles Baudelaire, wrote, Manet's faculties are so brilliant and so fragile that it would be a pity if he became discouraged. He will never quite make good the deficiency of his temperament, but he has a temperament. That's what counts. So what did Manet's parents do? Where did he come from? His father, Auguste, was a lawyer and later a magistrate while his grandfather had once been the mayor of Genevilliers, a town on the Seine not far from Paris. His mother, Eugenie, was a diplomat's daughter and also the goddaughter of Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte, a king, in, uh, sorry, a general in Napoleon's army who later went on to become King Carl XIV of Sweden. And she would go on to outlive her son while uh, Manet's father died in 1862 at the age of 66. The family's money came from land ownership. They owned 200 acres of land in Genevilliers uh, and also neighbouring Agnières-sur-Seine and also a house in Genevilliers. Um, Manet was the oldest of three brothers. His other two brothers uh, were Gustave and Eugène uh, and they grew up in a very nice part of town on the left bank in the Faubourg Saint-Germain, directly opposite the École des Beaux-Arts the very place that represented all Manet would come to reject in art, and also where many of those who rejected his art over the um, time and time again actually taught. So it was sort of, um, ironically, it was also the place where his posthumous exhibition was held in 1884. Where did he train? Well, naturally, Manet's parents wanted him to become a lawyer, but as a schoolboy, the only thing that he... Um, seemed to have any natural facility for was gymnastics. So um, he failed the entrance exam for the French Navy, and after a six-month stint aboard a vessel that went to Brazil and back, he managed to get, at the age of 18, a place in the studio of the painter Thomas Couture, uh, an Ecole graduate and winner of the Prix de Rome, who had studied under uh, Antoine Gingros, who in turn had studied under Jacques-Louis David. And if you turn to page three of your handout, there's an example of Couture's handiwork. Uh, and this is the painting he's best known for. It's an IMAX screen-sized work, Romans During the Decadence, dated 1847. It's nearly eight metres in length and close to five metres in height. Now, in spite of this pedigree, you know, having been taught by the man who was taught by Jacques-Louis David, the great sort of four sort of founder of sort of French neoclassical academic painting. In spite of this pedigree, Thomas Couture actually cultivated a somewhat liberal approach 
to the teaching of paintings. Um, and for example, he would take his students on a walking tour of Normandy in order that they might do studies from nature. And he also encouraged them to pursue a, a quicker, a sketchier, more vital quality to their paintings uh, than was current um, sort of at, in the, in, for the academic norm of painting at that time. Uh, and he even encouraged his, his students to allow the underpainting of their works to, sh to show through, which would have been, you know, sacrilege at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts. He also taught them to exploit the visual effects of juxtaposing complementary colours on the canvas. Now, although they seem to have locked horns frequently, Manet actually stayed in Couture's studio for six years, even though Couture did not hold a very high opinion of Manet's work and didn't think he would ever amount to um, much at all. Uh, and for his part, Manet, according to his friend Proust, once said of the studio, I don't know why I'm here. Everything we see is ridiculous. The light is wrong. The shadows are wrong. When I arrive at the studio, it seems to me I'm entering a tomb. Um, fortunately, Manet had other outlets for um, sort of artistic uh, uh, inspiration, and he spent a lot of time uh, studying and copying the paintings and prints of old masters in the Louvre, including Diego Velazquez, Giulio Romano, Francois Boucher, and Peter Paul Rubens. And he also visited Italy three times as a young man, in Rome copying Raphael's frescoes, frescoes in the Vatican apartments, and in Florence, copying frescoes by Andrea del Sarto in the cloister of the Santa Annunziata. And of course, he also clocked masterpieces in the Uffizi, including famously Titian's Venus of Urbino and Lippi's Head of a Young Man. So what were Manet's salon highlights? Over a period of 21 years, he actually managed to show 24 paintings at the salon. Um, he actually began sending works there in 1859. Uh, naturally, the first work he sent, the absinthe drinker, was rejected. But in 1861, he managed to nab an honourable mention for his uh, sort of genre picture, The Spanish Singer, which was very much influenced by his love of all things Spanish and dark and Velazquez at the time. Uh, he thereafter had, you know, uh, numerous battles um, but then again, in 1873, he uh, submitted a work, Le Bonbon, The Jolly Drinker, which was, um, uh, you know, it didn't win any prizes, but it was very much um, admired and, uh, you know, positively reviewed by the critics. And then again, in 1881, not long before he died, he received a second-class medal for his portrait of Monsieur Henri Rochefort. Uh, and he was made a chevalier in the Legion of Honour in 1881, thanks to his childhood friend, Proust, who had just been made uh, Minister of Fine Arts uh, that same year. What about the lowlights? Well, Manet had 12 paintings rejected by the Salon throughout his career. Uh, and some of the most famous uh, were, of course, Luncheon on the Grass, which, along with two other works, was um, refused by the Salon in 1863, and um, was then greeted with much hilarity by um, visitors to the first Salon de Refusé um, that year. Other works that we know and love by Manet, think of the Pfeiffer, a little boy playing um, the flute. That was rejected in 1866, and Nana uh, was rejected in 1877. And as Charles S. Moffat writes in the catalogue for the 1983 Manet uh, retrospective, which was held in New York and Paris, with the exception of 1878, 
Not a single season passed during the 1870s and early 1880s without controversy generated by Manet's submissions to the Salon. So what did people say about these works? Well, two of the most troubling periods in Manet's life would have been when Luncheon on the Grass was shown at the Salon de Refusé and when Olympia was shown at the Salon proper two years later in 1865. The critic Louis Etienne wrote about Dejeuner Salerbe, a commonplace woman of the demi-monde, as naked as can be, lolls shamelessly between two dandies dressed to the nines. This is a young man's practical joke, a shameful open sore not worth commenting upon. Meanwhile, uh, another critic, Théophile Torre, wrote on, uh, about the same painting. The nude does not have a good figure, unfortunately, and one cannot imagine anything uglier than the man stretched out next to her, who hasn't even the presence of mind to remove his horrid ring-shaped cap. It is the contrast of a creature so inappropriate in a pastoral scene with this undraped bather that is shocking. Two years later, when Olympia made it into the salon, only to be greeted by even more derision, Manet wrote to Baudelaire, who was then hiding out in Brussels, I wish I had you here, my dear Baudelaire. Insults are beating down on me like hail. I've never seen anything like it. Insults such as this, uh, written by Théophile Gautier. Here there is nothing we are sorry to say but the desire to attract, attract attention at any price. And the uh, social historian of art, T.J. Clarke, uh, in, the, uh, in his uh, book, uh, The Painting of Modern Life, observed that um, in Olympia, Manet's famous uh, work that was exhibited in the 1865 Salon and which was drawing on Titian's Venus of Urbino, in Olympia, prostitution has become more extravagant and threatening. And that seems to have been an accurate reflection of the state of the trade in the, in the later 19th century. So Olympia was seen to be a work that commented on sex work, which, of course, people had many, many anxieties uh, about at the time. Writing about Olympia's reception um, in 1865 in his book The Judgment of Paris, Ross King notes that some spectators collapsed in epidemics of crazed laughter, while others, mainly women, turned their heads from the picture in fright. And a correspondent for the uh, newspaper L'Epoque wrote at the time, nothing can convey the visitors' initial astonishment, then their anger or fear. And critics spoke of Victorine, in, who, who was the model, Victorine Mourant, who was the model for Olympia, in very personal terms. They spoke of her vicious strangeness. They said she, that she had the sourness of someone prematurely aged. They said she was grotesque and ugly and stupid. They had very, very strong opinions about Manet's painting. In 1867, Manet decided to mount a one-man exhibition after not having had any of his submitted works accepted for the 1867 Exposition Universelle. Uh, he hadn't bothered to send any works to the Salon that year either because the jury was virtually the same as that for the Expo. Uh, there were issues with mud and the building of the studio which led to uh, Manet uh, taking legal action a pavilion, I should say, not a studio. It finally opened later than he'd planned uh, in, uh, in late May, more than a month after the expo had opened. It featured 53 canvases hung on red velvet walls in a specially constructed wooden pavilion uh, on the right, very, very close to the Pont d'Alma uh, on the right bank of the Seine, not far from the exposition itself. 
Uh, and to finance this one-man show, Manet had, had to ask his widowed mother, Eugenie, um, for a loan of 18,000 francs. Now, Manet hadn't sold anything yet, and he was still living off uh, an allowance doled out by his mother. And, and she was getting rather exasperated at this state of affairs because she wasn't making, she wasn't forcing him to live like a miser. Like his, 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 his annual allowance was something like 20,000 francs, which was quite a lot in those days. Um, and she agreed, agreed to his request for another 18,000 francs only after insisting that he and his wife Suzanne give up their apartment in the Batignolles and move, move back in with her. Um, Manet received two good reviews uh, for his one-man show, but most of the, the Parisian papers completely ignored him and, of course, he didn't sell a single canvas. Uh, his friend Proust later wrote, they laughed in front of these masterpieces. Husbands escorted their wives. Wives brought their children. The entire world had to avail itself of this rare opportunity to shake with laughter. So, was Manet the father of Impressionism? He was certainly the unofficial leader of a group of avant-garde artists and writers who met regularly in venues such as the Café des Bars, the Café Je Bois and the Café de la Nouvelle Athene from the late 1860s onwards. Renoir was moved to say that Manet was as important to us Impressionists as Cimabue and Giotto were to the Italian Renaissance. And here, here's Monet, I should say. Here is Monet reminiscing about socialising with Manet and his circle. And Monet uh, writes, In 1869, Manet invited me to join him every evening at a cafe in the Batignolles. There I met Fontaine Latour, Cézanne and Degas, the art critic Durante, Emile Zola, as well as some others. I myself brought along Sisley, Basile and Renoir. This is because all four of them had studied under a a master by the name of uh, Charles Glair. Monet continues, nothing was more interesting than our discussions with their perpetual clash of opinion. They sharpened one's wits, encouraged frank and impartial inquiry, and provided us with enthusiasm that kept us going for weeks and weeks until our ideas took final shape. One always came away feeling more involved, more determined, and thinking more clearly and distinctly. So Manet was at the head of this avant-garde group. And even though, well, maybe we don't, strictly speaking, think of him as an Impressionist because he never exhibited with the Impressionists between 1874 and 1886, he continued to socialise with them and he continued to be the de facto figurehead of this sort of close-knit group that had started meeting in the 1860s. So why didn't he exhibit with the Impressionists when they mounted their first one, uh, their, their first independent exhibition in 1874. I mean, Manet certainly dabbled in en plein air painting from about 1870, and his palette becomes lighter than it had been in the 1860s, and we can certainly see that by looking at this work in comparison to his more Spanish works in the first black room. So he's using a lighter palette. He's trying his hand at plein air. He does this um, particularly in 1874, hanging out with Monet and Renoir. But his subjects in the main were different from those chosen by the Impressionists, and he wasn't principally interested in capturing the fleeting effects of light and colour in the atmosphere. Essentially, he was a realist, and he preferred to work with the figure rather than the landscape. 
And as I said, he was interested in and enthusiastic about modern life in Paris and all that it had to offer, pictorially speaking. He was also interested in the history of painting and his appropriation of iconic works from the art of the past. But he, he, he painted these in an entirely new register. So we think of Le Déjeuner Soleub, partially inspired by a figure group in Marc Antonio Raimondi's uh, engraving uh, after Raphael's The Judgment of Paris. Uh, and we also um, look at Olympia. We see that that leans heavily on Titian's Venus of Urbino, who, which he sees in the Uffizi when he's in, in Italy as a young man. And even Episode in a Bullfight, one of his many bullfight-themed works, was actually referencing a 17th century painting believed at the time to have been by Velazquez. Look, at the, when, as the Impressionists were just getting ready to mount their first independent exhibition, Manet had, you know, had enjoyed positive feedback, rare positive feedback at the Salon the year before for La Bonbonque, the Jolly Drinker. And he may not have wished to have endangered his sort of reputation by throwing in his lot with these independent artists and the quality of whose works varied considerably. Um, and, and, you know, we need to remember, of course, that... Um, up until 1873, Manet hadn't had many good experiences at the Salon since 1861. So he probably felt, oh, things are just getting good now. I'm going to stick to my path. So what can we say about Monet's paint, Manet's painting style and technique? Uh, in the 1983 exhibition catalogue, um, the scholar Francois Cachin describes Manet's brushwork as vigorous expansive of, of gesture, resolutely personal despite all influences. His metier was placed in the service of his simplifying vision of works whose images are often abbreviations, allusions to modern art, resulting, restating rather, its magnificence in modern terms. And she goes on the painter of contemporary life, but of life recreated in the studio, he wasn't particularly interested in en, en plein air, became the painter of painting himself. There's always a sense in Manet's work, I find, of the picturesque being in perfect tension with the material, that is, with the illusion of art dancing on a tightrope with the manner of its making. He's very much interested in composition, in separating the dark areas of, pictures, of his pictures from the lighter areas, and he has quite a linear focus which, of course, relates more to drawing and design and, and, you know, dare I say it, to academic painting than to the audacious experiments with light and colour as prosecuted by the Impressionists. But he's not interested in modelling with light and shade like the academic painters. You know, his contrasts are dramatic. His expression of form is often quite cursory. Um, it's as if he's taking the idea of chiaroscuro and applying it to the whole picture surface, darker areas, lighter areas, as opposed to the delicate chiaroscuro modelling of, of each and every personal object um, depicted in an academic painting. And this is not to say that he's not interested in colour. Manet's paintings reveal his close attention to tonal relationships, even if those relationships can be, can be quite strident at times. In fact, according to Zola, it was this quality in his paintings which he wrote from several feet away, give the picture a striking sense of depth. So let's look at one of his works, Les Savoirs de Bourges, the beer maid, sorry, that was terrible French, um, 1878 to 1879, oil on canvas. Um, I'm just going to give a little bit of uh, context about this work. 
Um, Manet painted an entirely different work called Café Concert the Reichshofen in 1878 and then cut into the, 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 the canvas before finishing it. And these two fragments were then completed as separate works. Now, the left side of this original painting, I'm not talking about this painting, I'm talking about a completely different painting. The left side of that original painting, which was two-thirds of the original canvas, he finished, and it became known as At the Café. And it was signed and dated 1878, and it's now in the Samlon Oscar Reinhardt in Winterthur in Switzerland. And there's an image of it on the second-to-last page of your handout. The right side of the original painting... Um, had a seven and a half inch wide strip affixed to it, and it was completed as corner of a cafe concert, dated to between 1878 and 1880, and it's now in the National Gallery. Um, this work was exhibited in early 1883, just months before Manet's death at the Salon de Beaux-Arts in Lyon, and it's in the final. Uh, it's on the final page of your of your handout. Now the model in both corner of a cafe concert, and this painting, the beer maid, was actually a real waitress at the Reichshofen cafe concert, and she uh, was convinced by Manet to go back to his studio and pose for him, and she only agreed to this on the basis that she could bring along a protector. And he's actually the fellow smoking the pipe in the foreground of both this painting and corner of a cafe concert, which is in the National Gallery in London. Um, and apparently Manet chose this particular beer maid because she was particularly adept at, at handling multiple beer glasses at once. Um, this is a work concerned with uh, depicting modern life in Paris. Uh, it's the cut and thrust of a busy bar, you know, with entertainment provided. The, the cropped nature of the composition definitely owes much to Japanese woodblock prints, and it also foregrounds the somewhat sort of chaotic nature of these sorts of venues where people from all walks of life would come together to drink, talk, carouse, and so on. And before I go on, I just want to show you uh, the two works because they do relate to each other. And you'll see that this was originally the one painting, okay? And then this became At the Café, which is in Switzerland, and this became corner of a cafe concert, which is in the National Gallery in London. And you can see the seven and a half inch canvas strip that's been added here so Manet could finish this work. And as you can see, it relates quite heavily to the work here. So in Paris at this time, in a venue such as this, you'd find well-heeled types slumming it in such venues that, you know, because they were lively and energetic. As well, you'd, pipe, you'd find more sort of working-class petty bourgeois people dressing above their station, taking advantage of the revolution in garments and textiles and colours that, was, that were happening in all the new department stores that were opening and perhaps, you know, dressing above their station. It was a place where appearances could be misleading, and that was sort of part of the frisson of these sorts of bars. Um, the, the social historian of art, T.J. Clark, 
refers to cafe concerts as, as glorified beer halls. And he said they were cafes, not theatres. The law took the distinction very much to heart and only reluctantly allowed the performances to consist of more than a singer or a stand-up comic. And you can see the singer here. Um, these venues were once again essentially the creation of Baron Hausmann. They grew fat in the free market for eating and drinking, which boomed on the boulevards in the 1860s. And by the early 1870s, there were at least 145 of these venues, probably many more. Why did the government not like these venues and sort of control them so tightly? Well, because, according to T.J. Clark, their repertoire, their repertoire was prone to two main deviations, politics and obscenity. So, our work is generally considered to be a second version of Corner of a Cafe concert, rather than a preliminary study. Uh, as Charles Moffat wrote about it in the 1983 exhibition catalogue, it represents the final distillation of the compositional scheme, the composition indicating refinement rather than a preparatory examination. Moreover, in having the waitress return the viewer's gaze, Manet created a compositional focus that the London painting lacks. You can see here she's not looking at the viewer, she's looking around, perhaps someone's calling out to her, asking for more beer. Uh, incidentally, by the early 20, 1920s, this work was in the collection of Prince Kojiro Matsukata of Tokyo, and uh, it remained in France, uh, unfortunately for him, uh, only to be sequestered during the Second World War. And in 1959, it became the property of France and entered the Louvre. Um, so I'd like to conclude this talk on Manet with a couple of words from the man himself. We haven't really heard much from what Manet said himself about his life and his work. He seemed to think that a feeling for art was innate. Art is a circle, he said. You're inside or outside by accident of birth. But one of the most telling comments he made about art was more instructional, and it's one I'll finish with. He said, conciseness in art is a necessity and a grace. In a figure, look for the full light and the full shadow. The rest will come naturally. And then cultivate your memory, for nature will never give you more than information. Memory is a lifeline that saves you from falling into banality. At all times, you must be the master and do what pleases you. And no set pieces. Please, no set pieces. Thank you very much.